Welcome back to Digital Health 101. Today, we will discuss simulation, and specifically how simulation can help an organization, or a small clinic for that matter, to better allocate its resources. Why does it matter? Now, resource allocation or resource optimization is perhaps the lowest hanging fruit in healthcare. Using machine learning combined with sensors to collect and process information such as room utilization in a clinic can lead to insights that can literally double a practice's bottom line while increasing patient access to scarce resources. We asked Dr. Rajiv Sivindran from Apprentice Health to explain how simulation can work. Dr. Rajiv Sivendran, I am so excited to have you on the podcast because ever since we met, I have always been so impressed with the work you're doing and the way you're approaching it and the problems you're trying to solve. And you've become quite the expert in this whole space of simulation and optimization of resources. So welcome to the podcast. Perfect. Thanks so much for having me. We're excited. So tell us a little bit about you. Tell us more as a, as a person, as a human, where'd you come from? What got you interested in this? We know you're, actually, I just introduced as a physician, but people don't know that necessarily. And how did you make this shift to digital health and technology? Perfect. That's a great question. So I'm a physician by training. Until three years ago, when I started Apprentice Health, I was an attending physician in internal medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston, where I'm located. It's also where I did my training. But the idea for the company and how I got into it actually started while I was doing my MBA. So so I went and got my MBA at Harvard Business School while I was still a practicing doctor. I would practice at nights, go to school again during the day. And the reason for that was like many of us, you know, I've been kind of frustrated with how, how we make decisions in healthcare, the kinds of problems we tackle. And I'm really like a first problem, first principles like solver in terms of for, for problems. And so I wanted to learn from the best of finance, operations, all the fields that we don't learn as doctors learn first principles, and then bring it back to healthcare and had an idea for the company that involved simulation, which we'll talk about, and then launched into this company since then. It's an amazing journey and congratulations for making it. It's, it's so impressive. Primarily, you just have an inquisitive mind and you want to solve problems. And you came across a technology called simulation and it, it got your attention. So let's talk a little bit. What is simulation just generically? Yeah. So like very high level, all simulation is a model that's easily adjustable by people like humans that like can answer questions for you. So now what's a model? But, Wait a minute. A model, it's not a glamour model. It's not a model. Yeah. So it's, what's a model? In this case, a digital simulation is like a representation, the thing that you're trying to describe. Like digital model of Dr. Beanie could be like a little dot that travels in space. And that now represents like who you are in the simulation. And so it's just some representation that encompasses some characteristics about you. And so in this case, it's like the simulation model of you is a little dot that takes up an exam room space or whatever mm -hmm. it is. It's very broad. You know, the history of simulation goes back since the beginning of time and like thinking about problems. Like we often mm -hmm. simulate a problem in our brain before we go off and do it. But modern simulation that uses computers. So let's stop for a second. Oh, yeah. What you're talking about is the idea that if I'm going to go and make eggs, I will think about the process of making the eggs. I will simulate it in my brain. I'm going to go to the fridge, get the eggs out, break them, put them in a pan, heat it up, and then eat them. And that's the simulation you're talking about? Exactly. So like in the broadest sense, before like computers were even created, we have our own like models in our brain that's like you've stored like your process of what it takes to make an egg. And so like before you make that egg, 
you probably like run across your model and it's like, here's the 20 different times I've made this egg. Here's how I'm going to tune it this time because I've learned something. My model is better. And now I'm going to go scramble this egg and it's going to be a little bit better. I've like planned ahead of time. My brain stores this model. So one of the key aspects of models is they can adapt and improve over time, right? Exactly. And they don't have to. So say you're like, you've reached Happy your pinnacle. Your yeah, your, your pinnacle of egg making. Like you now have this really great, yeah. You now have this really great model, which could be the pinnacle of anybody ever making like an egg. Like there are some rules of nature that like once you discover them are unchangeable because they're rules and your model will never get better. And that's really key for when we talk more about the, the nuts and bolts of simulation. Fantastic. Sorry to go down that rabbit hole. One of them is what we talk about simulation. So back to the history of simulation. So this is a good way to describe like different flavors of simulation to like really mm. round somebody. So, so modern simulation really gets its roots from airplanes and lunar history. So around this time, so think like the 50s, 60s, 70s, we now have computers that are just fast enough to run some pretty complex calculations. And so if you look at the history of the lunar project, they had to create a model of what it's like for my spaceship to go all the way from Earth to the moon and not crash and not burn. Like if you get this wrong, Neil Armstrong, like they don't make it to the moon, right? So very high risk, but high reward situation. And so you need to figure out ahead of time all of the different things that could happen and prepare for it. And so the thing about going to space is that the better you understand physics, the better you can make a model ahead of time that's going to predict what's going to happen. And so like you can imagine, these guys created computer programs, computer simulations, where they encoded the rules of physics in the code. So basically what like the program would look like, the simulation would look like if you add something with this amount of mass or this shape, this is how gravity is going to affect that object. And now, like imagine them adding all of these different parts to this rocket that have different masses and different shapes. They have already modeled, like encoded the rules of physics to say, this is what it's going to do to turbulence. This is what it's going to do to gravitational force. This is where I predict my friction and heat to build up. Because these are fundamental rules of physics. And so you can build code and software lines to create a model. Right. And so once you have this model of this is how my physics in a, like, in a machine coded, you can run simulations. So you have this model. So now it's like, let me run a simulation millions of times where I change one variable. Mm -hmm. So let me, for example, explore what happens if the heat starts to heat up by a degree of Fahrenheit. So my model that I built up already describes what happens to that object when it heats up. It's going to change. Right. It's like you've encoded the rules of physics. So you can run through like these millions of simulations, say like we on our path to the moon don't expect it to ever get hotter than this. And it looked like through our simulations, our current rocket ship as it's constructed will do okay. In the same way, like if I change my wing structure, my rocket's going to make it to orbit because it's not going to get in a weird wind tunnel and flip over. That's actually where it started. It started really in the lunar project. And so high risk decision where you have to run through every combination ahead of time as you possibly can so you don't get it wrong. And the model, the simulation model is really all physics. Like mm -hmm. here is how matter, things, physical objects behave when they're subject to different forces. 
And so if you inch forward in time, now this takes us then to modern day airplanes. And so people often think have a good idea, like what wind tunnels, you probably have seen this on like mm-hmm, TV mm-hmm. there, right? So like wind tunnels are cheap ways for to like when you have a new airplane design to figure out what's going to happen ahead of time, right? So you don't want to mm-hmm. have like an airplane that on its like thousandth run runs into something in real world that it can't handle. And so we have a physical simulator and a wind tunnel where it's like actually changing all of the different wind conditions to do this. But even before then, it's really expensive to build the first airplane design to even bring mm-hmm. to the wind tunnel. If you get that wrong, you've spent potentially like tens, hundreds of millions of dollars on a new airplane design and you've gotten nowhere. So what the aviation industry did was over years and decades built better digital simulations, better representations of airplane parts and how they change under the different rules of physics and wind, mass and friction. So they could run these computer models and change one variable at a time and say like, okay, here's my airplane design. I'm going to change wind speed and see what happens. I'm going to change this part and see what happens. In silico, in the chips, before they even yep. make it to the fit, like physical wind tunnel, they've already run through so many combinations to actually get to the final result so that you're pretty confident that what you're going to do is going to work even before you do it in real life. But that's modeling in the outside world. If we're the inside is healthcare. Now you're in business school, you learn all about this and you decide that it's applicable to healthcare. Where do you see the potential? Yeah. So the potential is really about resource allocation and logistics in healthcare. So everything like anything that has to do with when do you schedule patients? How much equipment do you need? How much space do you need? How much staffing do you need? When do you need that staffing? How much do you need? How do you distribute uh, those resources? Yeah, how you distribute those resources? That those questions are all best solved by simulation. So that ahead of time, these are really costly things, right? Like you don't want to understaff by 25% because then your clinic day might never end. You might be giving unsafe healthcare. You don't want to overstaff by 50% or you're going to go out of business. You don't want to schedule patients, you know, an hour ahead of time for when they actually need to start or they're never going to come see you again unless they really like you. Or in the world of coronavirus, you don't want people to even be there for 15 minutes because it's potentially unsafe for you. And so this world of resource allocation is really the sweet spot of simulation. You know, just like the aviation industry, it's all about the physical world and like the rules that govern them. And that's what really simulation is best for, this resource and, allocation. And today, to tell us, for systems that don't have access to simulation, it's mostly trial and error and also just position preferences. They don't want to be in a specific place. They're, they have an OR date in a certain place or the allocations are kind of a haphazard, right? There's Ex- really not been in the past a methodical way to, to distribute these resources. Exactly. You know, as people, we're pretty good at like getting to best answers. Like it's, it's usually hard to beat the human brain, like in terms of getting a better decision, but it's not in resource allocation. So these kind of tribal rules of like, here's our experience of how to best divvy up the resources fall apart pretty quickly in healthcare without these more advanced tools. So like, just like you talked about, like, OR utilization or exam room utilization, like we have history where we're like, here's our trial and error. And this is what we've been doing for the past three years. And it works. But to make a change on this, it's all going to be trial and error because you don't really know directionally how to improve. It's more much like a black box once you end up with, here's how we've been doing it for 
you know, the last five years. That's an important key element to the rest of the discussion is like when we have a system that has identified an, a solution, if there is a stress on the system, increased demand or decreased demand, it really doesn't know what levers to pull to optimize the resources for the new situation. Is that, is that what you were telling me? Th- that's exactly like if your clinic, for example, has always been operated in one way and it's been like stable like that way for like three or four years you have a good understanding of how to work in your current state. But if something drastically changes, like COVID-19, or you don't have enough ventilators, for example, or, or some other stressor, we're not very good at making those decisions and changing our mental model to actually be able to adjust because our current model of how we do things doesn't actually take in all those nuances. It, you're The way you do it right now, like you never made a, a model ahead of time to be like, what happens if there's a pandemic? And so everybody has to rush to relearn from scratch. Whereas imagine you had a simulation that incorporated all of this information ahead of time. It could adjust in seconds. And so you can compress what sometimes is like, you know, years or decades of trial and error into an hour worth of time in simulation world. Okay. So now we understand what a simulation is. We understand how simulations have been applied to optimize. We talked about airplanes at the beginning. Then we took it back to healthcare by saying, well, we're not that different. When it comes to resource allocation, we get to trial and error. But then at some point, if there's a stressor, growth, decrease access, whatever, it's actually very difficult to optimize. And these models can really help. Let's stay there for a second. How do you build a model in a healthcare environment? How do you if I have a clinic and I actively want to create a model, and this is what your company does. So full disclaimer, we're going to be getting into a little bit of that. But this is what's so interesting to me is let's talk a little bit about the bits and pieces necessary to create that model. Okay. So this is where simulation gets hard to start. And this is a good distinction from like when you hear like buzz around AI and like, you know, quick to develop things. So for simulation to work, you have to really understand the world around you and your processes. So like, for example, my company, Apprentice Health, builds simulation models for outpatient doctor's offices. To do that, we have to understand the rules that govern how a doctor's office operates and how patients flow through them and how staff operate incredibly well. It's so, the physics it, of a clinic office. Exactly. Right? It's a physics of a clinic office. Like, imagine creating this airplane model like back in the day, but like not understanding gravity, like right. your, your, your simulation model would be useless and it would be dangerous. So to get started, you have to understand the laws of nature that govern clinic flow. And so in this case, the lucky thing is that everything with basically without exception in resource allocation and healthcare obeys a theory called queuing theory. So, you know, this is basically like line theory. Q is just a line. It's very well known. It goes back for you know decades as well, which essentially boils down to like you, a doctor, can't be in two places at once. You obey certain laws of physics. I can't be in both exam room eight and exam room nine at the same time. And you can't do two things at once. You know, you can't treat Mrs. Smith at the exact same moment in time that you're treating Mr. Jones. So like your brain like obeys natural laws of physics and time, like in the closest approximation. So like you can't spend a minute's worth of time treating one person while you're actually tra- treating somebody else. Like your brain might multitask, but right. you are not doing productive work on both at the same time. And so right. that is essentially true. Like, so for all of decision-making and rules, those two rules define everything about you and your clinic and what you do. 
apart from like normal rules of gravity and, you know, in space so time, let, but these two Let's rules. go a little bit further to queuing theory because it's a really key element to this. And queuing theory, just for the audience, is like, imagine if you're running a counter or an airline counter and you need to sell them more tickets and queuing theory will tell you if it takes a half an hour to sell a ticket and you have two people at the counter, you'll be able to sell so many tickets. And if there's 10 people coming to that desk every hour, you will start to build a queue. And if you add a third person, that queue will go down. And so it allows you to allocate the resource based on the demand. Is that a simple way to Yeah, frame that's it? that's a very simple way. So like queuing theory is now our like law of gravity. Like you, you, you encode queuing theory, this like you waiting in line, and now you can describe anything that happens with resource allocation and healthcare. So everything about your journey to go see a doctor can now be encoded in code. You code it, and then you're gonna go out and get the data to feed the algorithm, or how does it work? Exactly, so you code it, and now you need the data. So once you have that, the reason that simulation has been slow to uptake in healthcare until recently is that it takes very accurate representations of the actual like data of the processes that are going on to power this like simulation model. To get in there, like the model, a simulation model of healthcare, you're going to need to know things like for every patient, what resources do they need? This is going to be like, how much time do they need to do paperwork in your waiting room before they come see you? How long are they going to see your physician assistant for? How long is it going to take them to do their laboratory tests or their x-ray? Does everybody need an x-ray? When do they see Dr. Binney? How long do they see him for? How much space does that take up? There's a lot of measurements needed to build up the process of even one individual patient. And even then it changes by individual, right? A return visit versus a new visit to a primary care office where they may have 17 different problems they are going to behave very differently from someone coming back in for a quick checkup for their heart high blood pressure, right? Exactly. So now you can think like there's thousands, super complicated. So like if you looked at all of the variables, it's over Google. So like this, this becomes beyond even the realm of a person or even biggest supercomputer in the world to compute all of the different variations. The, the space, there's more possibilities than there are atoms in the universe. There's That's more like than a Google, you said. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Google's a big number. If people yeah. didn't know that. So it's huge. If you were just to get started, a normal practice doesn't use simulation because to power a simulation model, like you need a lot of data that has to be accurate and has to encompass a lot of this variability. And so it is actually simpler to get started to do something simple and just say like, I see 10 patients a day. Each of them take me on average 15 minutes. My news take me double the, like, the length of my old patients. Here's my way I'm going to like set my processes and be done. And you never simulate it. You just do basic statistics and basic math of like, here's how many hours I have to allocate in my day. And here's how I'm going to spread my resources over time. And it's because simulation is really hard to build up that data set, even after you've built up this model of this queuing theory to do. But once, if you can build up that data, it is incredibly powerful because now you can actually assess all that different variation that we talked. It's like all of those thousands and thousands of different ways of doing things, a computer can process in a way that a person never could. Right. A person would spend their entire lifetime or like several lifetimes looking at all those variables. A computer can do that in hours or like 12 hours. And so if you can feed that computer all of that variation of accurate data, you can get amazing results on actually improving resource allocation and dipping things up over time. And so that's really the key. Okay. So how do I collect that kind of data? There are two traditional ways of doing it. 
And we'll start with the old method, and then we'll talk a little bit about what, what we do, which I think is the future. The old method is to look for like kind of like digital breadcrumbs that like describe what you or your patients do. So the example typically in healthcare is we look at things like our emit discharge feed. For example, there is a record that's created when the patient enters the emergency room. Let me interrupt you a second. So now you're talking about accessing the electronic health record. Exactly. So that's a great point. So to do this kind of data collection to feed your simulation historically, you'd have to access electronic health record. And you actually have to go pretty deep. You have to go into these like log data sets that show things like, when did Dr. Vinny open his computer to document about this patient? When did somebody physically chart that that patient entered their exam room or their operating room? And these kind of like little breadcrumbs that give you clues as, as to what actually happened. They're not a complete representation, but there's some clues. And those are not data points that are usually handed out by the electronic health record. It's not part of the, the reporting they do. You have to really have access to this core data set, which normally is not accessible. So it's really pretty hard to do this digital crumbs idea. Yeah, right? it's hard. I would say that there are companies are, that are doing it now and they're, they're very successful in the space. It'll get easier and easier, but they're usually garden walled off. They're hard to access and they're variable. So in operating rooms, they've been historically pretty good. So for example, like, as you know very well, you have to document things like anesthesia time, like regulation. There's a lot mm -hmm. of regulations that govern you actually typing or somebody in your team typing this information that you can then build up some information about your process, either manually to fill, like feed a simulation or feed statistics or feed AI, which we won't talk about right now, but ways to do this. But it's incomplete and it's not real time and it doesn't allow you to optimize every part of healthcare. It's very niche. And what's an alternative to accessing the digital breadcrumbs in the health record? So the alternative is to use sensors, like think little electronic devices that can capture information about a patient's journey through the healthcare system, as well as about the staff member. And so the idea here, and this is what we do, is location data, so data from location sensors are an excellent proxy in healthcare to build up all this variation and process maps about the journey of a patient through healthcare. Concrete example here is like, if you have a location sensor on a patient who's going to see you in your clinic, you have a real-time data stream of, this is how long the patient stayed in the waiting room for, this is where they are, the waiting room, this is when they entered, this is when they left, so this is how much time that step took, this is when they entered the radiology suite. This is when the x-ray tech entered with them. This is how long they were there together. So this is how long that process step took. This is how long it took them to get to the exam room. So here's even like their walking time. And then here's how much time they were in that room alone. And here's how long they were with the doctor for. So to be clear, they're carrying a device that sends out a signal that's captured by another device or multiple devices spread around the space that they're walking through. And as they go from one spot to the other, the system captures the motion of that sensor, which is attached to them. And that's how it, it knows where things are. Exactly. Just like GPS for the outdoor world. This is like indoor GPS Love it. for, for, for it. buildings. This turns out is just like an excellent proxy to build up all those process steps and data that you need to fill fuel simulation model. And you are going to though also correlate that to some electronic health record data about that patient because you also now need to know variables that might impact that transit as a first visit, return visit, 
what orders were set up, right? So you're collecting data, not just from the sensors, but also from the exactly. in some way. So each sensor, when, for example, when a patient gets them, is uniquely identified to them through the electronic health record. Like, you know, patient, Mr. Jones got this sensor number at this time, and you can match up those two data sets. So whatever a hospital wanted to like give access to, like it could be as simple as this was a new patient, a return patient. It could be more complicated. It could say like, this is a new patient who is post-op hip surgery. All that identifying information can be linked to the person. So you can even build all of that nuance into your simulation model of here's what's going to happen if you change your variable. So it can be super simple or it can be more complex. And if I'm not mistaken, you're also tagging the clinic providers, the staff, the physicians, everybody is inputting information to that model. Exactly. So just like the patients, each staff member has their own uniquely identifying you know, sensor, this Bluetooth in our case, and super personalized. So I know it's like Dr. Beanie or Dr. Smith, or Dr. Jones, all the way down to like this medical assistant or this nurse practitioner. So it allows you to build up super personalized simulation models that are unique to the data and processes for each doctor, each clinical team. So you're not creating, the model is not some generic random model that was built at Harvard Medical School for their environment. This is a model that has been optimized specifically for my clinic, my processes, my patients, my inefficiencies, my efficiencies, my infrastructure number, or as a number of uh, x-ray suites I have, number of labs I can get, that kind of thing. Exactly. So th this is now where the power of the simulation approach really comes in. Now you've spent those years building the framework of encoding all of these like rules of nature, like instead of physics, all this cubing mm -hmm. theory there. So now each time you go to somebody, every doctor obeys the same rules of physics, the same cubing theory rules. So you don't have to recode that. You can just bring in everybody's unique data that just describes them. So it is a universal framework to get a personalized answer for everybody. Our same model, simulation model, that works for a primary care doctor also work on a super specialized UCSF orthopedics doctor who sees certain types of patients because you know the physics hasn't changed, the queuing theory hasn't changed, but we feed it with data about you and your patients gathered from like in our case, these sensors, not the other person's data. And that's all you have to change. So you get it right, right once and you reuse it. Perfect. So I, I misstated that. The model itself is not changing, but it can take different inputs to provide outputs that are specific to that practice. Exactly. So is simulation the panacea for everything or is it something that does better than other things? So there are things that it does better than other things. The thing that it excels at is if a person can encode that process, like the, the rules, very accurately. If that is true, so like if a person, like an engineer, can understand that the problem that they're trying to solve well enough then simulation is likely the gold standard approach to answer the question that you're trying to answer. That's certainly true of resource allocation, but that's true of other problems as well. So if you understand something really well, if you take the time to build up a simulation model, it's almost certainly going to be the gold standard. Downside of simulation is if you don't understand all of the nuances really well. Like say that there is just some variable that you don't understand how it governs or influences the other variables in your system. Like it's undiscovered. It's an undiscovered rule or feature about the thing that you're trying to do. You're likely going to fail with simulation because you wouldn't have coded it in there. And say that variable changes in real life, your simulation model is going to be completely off in its output. 
And so, but the things about physical world, those are knowable things by us and like through experiments and like decades of experiment, like experience, those are really good for things that don't describe the physical world or like super complex simulation is not as good for. Simulation sounds really powerful in the hospital setting from the way you described it. And it sounds like you've had some great success with that. Come back to that in a minute. But where are we going with simulation? If we were to look at 10 years, do you see it being increasingly applied in healthcare? Yes. So like if you look at the arc of, you know, every major logistics oriented business in the last 30, 40 years, they're all incredibly simulation dependent. So all of manufacturing relies on simulating out their processing lines ahead of time to schedule supply, demand, workers. And they've been doing this for 30 years. And they've gone to the point now where they simulate everything ahead of time. And now they're adding robots Mm -hmm. to finish automating the process. Because not only have they been simulating and understanding their flows and their cues for such a long time, they can now add a robot at the end of a simulation and automate, completely automate even the actual work in the real world. So you fast forward for healthcare in 10 years, everything that's logistics oriented and resource allocation. So scheduling of patients, of staff, of buying things like equipment, space, not only will it be fully simulated, this is actually one of those places where the hype of full automation is real. So because this is a place where computers programs, which have been programmed by people, can outperform the people themselves. Because like the computer can look at that, like, you know, millions and millions of variations and get built up an incredibly accurate model that's as good as like, you know, physics. And then at the end, automate it. So like you just accept the computer results and have the computer input, like say, like, here's your schedule. Here's when everybody should arrive all the way down to the level of like, we predict you're running low on your hip implants. I'm just going to go ahead and automatically place the order for you. A person doesn't even need to be in the loop. Or before then, a person in a loop, all they're doing is pressing approve because you've already gone through the simulation approach beforehand. So everything will be automated in a similar way that Amazon's basically almost already there. I think this is very, very promising. There's another piece we didn't get to, which is more than resource allocation, but avoiding redundant work. So you don't redo the same thing over and over again. That's the simulation that'll help with that. But let's talk a little bit about the impact that it's had, real world impact. There's a couple of stories about what kind of, if I simulate my process, there's a cost associated with that. What kind of a return on that investment can I see? both in terms of my ability to increase capacity, but also, of course, revenue. Yeah, that's a great question. I'll give you some historical examples that are like pre-apprentice health, just a little bit like some work out in the published world. So the best published work that I know comes from the Dana-Farber now from like five to 10 years ago. So they were early adopter of indoor GPS system where all of their cancer patients in their clinic have been tracked as well as their staff. So exactly what we talked about getting this location data. And they had PhD scientists build up a basic simulation model. So didn't even get to all the nuance that we talked about of hyper-personalization, mm-hmm. like every patient. And what their simulations revealed was this clinic could fit in about 20 to 30% more patients per day by using their space better. So meaning that like if you ran the simulations, it looked like you could always add an extra doctor to into that clinic on every given day and never run into any bottlenecks where the doctors were record tripping over each other for space or competing for resources. And so people didn't believe that beforehand. So I actually had the pleasure of meeting the former chair of that department like years later at a different institution. And he was like, Rajiv, I wasn't a believer in this. You know, like we've been doing it this way for decades. I don't think there's space but the data doesn't lie. The simulation told us there was going to be space. So it went through like millions of different calculations. So like, let's give it a shot. 
right? It's data oriented in a way that are like normal policies and way that normally make decisions isn't. And they followed the simulation results and they now see 20 to 30% more doctors in clinic than they did before. And that it's a consistent, sustainable piece. And so that 20 to 30% number of capacity, so more care teams, more clinicians in the same physical space, the same staff, same support staff is potentially the largest ROI of any investment in healthcare. So I know that's a very bold statement, but money-wise, if you in a healthcare facility can increase your capacity by 20 to 30% and only have to pay for that extra doctor or like the doctor and the medical assistant who works with them or that, like that team that you've added, you can double your profit margin fairly easily. So like average profit margin, let's say it's like 5%. It's lower for some, it's higher for others. Entire economics of healthcare is devoted to like, can you get some incremental revenue and capacity? If you can do that by getting 20 to 30% better use of your space, you've now effectively doubled your profit margin. You've spent very little to actually outfit your clinic with the sensors and simulation technology. Not only are you seeing more patients in clinic, but now you have all these extra patients in your system. So they're going to get chemotherapy. They're going to get infusion. They're going to get inpatient hospitalizations. And so not only did you double the profit margin of your clinic, you've now increased it, like your system-wide capacity by a huge bump. And so that downflows into, I think, hundreds of millions of dollars at scale per, per health system per year of profit. And for those who don't like to look at healthcare as a financial model and prefer to look at it more of a, an access side, you're also increasing access, which is a phenomenal benefit to the population that needs to be serviced, especially in, in environments where the resources are limited. Exactly. So, you know, you can think of this, I just gave you the profit example, which is they like how you get for it, so it's good. But now imagine this, so you're, you're treating 20 to 30% more patients, same resources. And so not only have you increased access, you could potentially do this all by, as well as reducing costs. So instead of taking that, say a hundred million extra profit, if you scaled this, you take all that money back and you reduce your costs. So like you can now have lower costs and increase access. And so it allows you to like defy traditional problems in healthcare of every time you add a new technology or a new service line, things get more costly. Here you can actually increase access and decrease costs and just some simple maneuvers. And the last thing I want to mention and talk a little bit about is that once you've optimized the system, you've changed it and therefore you need to reevaluate it, right? So this exactly. is something that isn't just a one, you can do it as a one-time simulation, be done with it. But usually once you, you you have the infrastructure to collect this data, you want to keep doing it so that you continuously optimize. Is that right? That's right. There's kind of a diff, couple different ways to think about this. So one is the system is always changing. So like, you know, it might not seem that way that like six months from now is different than six months previously, but it is like staff change, different types of providers work together on a given day. And so you want to periodically update your simulations and your interventions to stay at steady state. And then we've seen pandemics can happen and you can have giant shifts. And so if you have this model in place that you kept updated, you can adjust it on a dime and then have the next day your output of, okay, what do I do when I have 30% more telemedicine visits, 10% less in-person visits, and this type of patient doesn't have to happen. It lets you be incredibly agile by continuing to collect this data, simulate, and add. And so that's kind of like the time dimension. The other piece, though, it turns out, is even without this like world of like pandemics or like external stressors, there's so much variability on a day-to-day -day basis in healthcare just based on even which doctors are in clinic at the same time, that to get maximum results, you need to keep on simulating. So you have to build your model 
and then continually output into the future of what the best decision is for that day. So like the example would be like, say nothing changed about your practice patterns. You see your patients exactly the same, but like certain days, a different doctor is added to the mix who happens to be on the same clinic. You need to simulate and predict in the future using that same model so that each day gets its optimal performance, even if your underlying inputs didn't change. That's getting a little into right. the weeds, but if that other person comes into the clinic and the physician, now they're accessing radiology, imaging, labs, my nurses, the other staff as well. And so those resources now are getting pulled in directions and my wait time's gonna go up, but just by definition. So it's important to model that. And so one last question, this may be the longest podcast with them, but it's been so interesting. Uh, this has been great. Is will simulation help me rethink my model when we go to this sort of partially virtual, partial in-person clinics, which we know is going to happen. We're never going to go back to 100% in-person, but it's really hard to figure out how much of those resources to reallocate and what to do with the space that was once given to in-person. This is like a perfect use case for simulation. So now imagine you had this really complicated clinic before like virtual care took off and now you have like some extra percentage. Let's say it's 20% like post-vaccination. Those virtual visits, like, are you going to see them in your office, in your exam room, in the same exam room that you see your other patients? Are you going to go to a special pod so that you don't use up an exam room that somebody else can use? How do I even answer these questions and think about them? Because it's like really complicated with all these doctors practicing at once with people having different mixes of telemedicine and it's like changing week by week or maybe it's going to change quarter by quarter. And so it's going to be perfect. So like say you measure how long it takes you for your telemedicine visits in the same way you're using your location sensors to to your in-person visits. It ends up being one unified simulation model. You can do things like let's stress test the system. So let's give everybody their minimum number of telemedicine visits that they could have in a day. And let's say like here in an output, here's the maximum number of doctors who can practice on that day at a given time. So that even if everybody has in-person visits mostly that day, they have enough space and they don't like bump into each other. So you can have this hybrid clinic. Or the other example would be like, let me answer the question of like, do I want to invest in a special telemedicine booth for my doctors. So like the use case that a lot of people are going to start thinking about is like, why do I use up a whole hundred square foot feet of real estate that has an exam room bed, like all this other stuff for my normal visits for a telemedicine visit. Like I could put another kind of doctor in there and use my real estate better. So you can just go back to your simulation model and say, okay, virtual visits, half the time, Dr. Beanie is going to go to a special pod that we've like, like outfitted for him to get those. It's like a phone booth to go to that takes up less space. We can answer and like address that question in an hour. The simulation will come back and say, here is the best outcome. This is what you should do. And here's your actual schedule that you should follow. So you can figure out if that's the best decision. Because at the end of the day, it just increases variability and complexity past what humans can actually get. People can actually figure out the right answer that only a computer simulation actually can do. My understanding of the simulations, but the Achilles heel is they can only optimize for one outcome at a time. Is that true or false? That's you can put different, every outcome can be weighted. So just like any decision, like say you have a complex decision in your life and like 10 different things can be outputted. You have your own model of like, here's what I care most about. And I'm going to weight them in different ways. Simulation model is the same. So like the outputs of the models, we weight them. You can say like, I'm going to put a heavy weight on my, my length of my day, my work day not going up by five minutes, we put that weight in. So we have our own like default weights that we then let you adjust 
to your own weights. So you can have so, your own preferences to do it. I don't want people waiting in my waiting room more than 10 minutes because of COVID. I don't want uh, my x-ray to be backed up more than 20 minutes. You can put all those things in and weigh them so that it comes up to 100. But at the end of the day, the software can prioritize certain things over others so that you can optimize for them. You also optimize for one outcome and everything goes to that outcome, but everything else everything else suffers then. Exactly. Awesome. If I got that right, I am much smarter than I was a few minutes ago. So thank you. <laughs> I thought I understood this pretty well, but you've elucidated it even further. Great examples. We talked a little bit about the history simulation, where it came from, the drivers in these very high-risk situations that required a better understanding of what the options were to optimize for a positive outcome, which is landing on the moon for one. Then we talked a little bit about, about many other industries that have used this sort of technology to optimize their processes all the way down to the delivery of goods over the internet. I think we talked a little bit about Amazon there. We talked about airplanes and airplane design. And then we took it down to healthcare and we then hyper-focused on the space called the uh, resource and the outpatient clinic and how to use this technology to optimize the way we allocate resources with the outcome that can be anywhere from 20 to 30% increase in the utilization of a room. By the way, even a 5% increase could be sufficient in a large enough space to allow for an extra physician to come in. And that the benefits to this sort of application are both financial because, of course, increased flow through a fixed asset will increase the income from that asset, but also the very positive outcome of increasing access to scarce resources, which are clinicians. Overall, you've painted a really promising picture for the application of simulation and optimization in healthcare. And we know your company, Prentice Health, which we can find online at prenticehealth.com is ready and willing to support anybody who's interested in trying this out. And you guys have been very successful in it. And is there anything I want you want to add to that little summary? That's a great summary. I was listening, see? <laughs> well, listen, thanks so much for joining us and forward to perhaps welcome you back and have a time to talk about some of the details of this. So thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, exploring the building blocks of digital health. If you liked what you heard, follow us on Twitter at dhealthtoday, that's dhealthtoday altogether. And follow the Digital Orthopedics Conference I chair at thedocsf, that's at the D-O-C-S-F. See you on the next episode of Digital Health 101 on Digital Health Today. I think that's the future. You know, I think like our future is will become like more and more increasingly like self-serve. Like we've built all this models for you. You don't even have to talk to us. But right now, like you need a little bit of an expert in the loop to make sure like my models are fitted well. And mm -hmm. but when you fast forward, like this is actually like the path to like to automation. Like AI is actually really hard to put into an automation loop safely. But here, mm -hmm. like it's super safe. And so like the future will be like I have my simulation model that covers everything from my like vendor ordering how much. I equipment I need to staff in. And once you trust it, because like you've been following it in your own self-serve model, like you'll connect it to your ordering system or somebody just has to like say, click purchase. It'll be all self-serve and it'll all be like AWS equivalent. There's going to be like a simulation framework that you use for healthcare. It'll be self-serve. It'll be easy enough that like your practice managers could use without us ever. And you don't need to have a consultant. It just becomes like the way you do work in healthcare. But super cool. 